The American auto industry has gone through gut-wrenching changes in the last year. Tens of thousands of auto workers have been thrown out of work. Dozens of suppliers have filed for bankruptcy. Thousands of dealers are being closed. And automotive communities have been devastated by all the upheaval. But this also means that most of the legacy costs and bad habits have been broomed out of the system. Now, there's no more excuses. The Detroit automakers will be in the most competitive position they've been in for nearly 40 years. But do they have the right people in management to pull this off? Do they have the proper business structures in place to come roaring back out of the ashes? Those are some of the topics that we're going to be addressing on today's show. And joining me for that discussion are Dr. David Cole from the Center for Automotive Research, Tom Krischer from the Associated Press, and Edward Lapham from Automotive News. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to our discussion this morning with Dr. David Cole, the chairman for the Center of Automotive Research. Dave, great having you back here on the set of AutoLine. Good to be with you. Also joining us today, Tom Krischer from the Associated Press and Ed Lapham from Automotive News. Great having you both here, too. Good to be here, John. Dave, let's talk about uh, some of the changes, especially that are going on at General Motors. What do you make of the management changes that are going on there? We've seen a a slew of retirements announced, uh, a lot of new positions or or actually people stepping into new positions. Is GM got the management structure now that it needs? Well, who knows? I I think any management structure uh, you learn to uh, work with, and you probably need to change it periodically because we always find sort of the easy way to do things, which may not be the best way. But they needed to be leaner. There's no question about that. I think this is true of all of the auto companies. I was with one of my former students that's an executive with Ford last night. Uh, We were playing golf together, and he said, you know, we still have too many people. And bureaucracies build in part to sort of feed themselves. And when you get this kind of a traumatic experience, you can go through a a dramatic leaning process. And I think that's happening. Uh, Some people say you gotta change the culture. I'm not, the culture's been changing for a long time. Others who say you gotta throw everybody out. Well, this is the most complex industry in the world by far. And you you can't just throw people in that aren't familiar with it. But I, I think the changes are probably appropriate. Some of the older people are stepping aside. They are eliminating some of the overlapping uh, control. The one thing that they had done a few years ago, which was absolutely correct, and this is true of both GM and Ford, is that where the various parts of the business, they have one person in the world that is in charge of that. You know, Lutz is the product guy. He had uh, that. Derek Kuzak at Ford, they have one guy. If you don't have that, you can't really integrate globally. What do you make of Lutz uh, staying on? First he announced he's, he's going to retire, and then he just announces, no, he's not going to retire. Was this the new chairman, Ed Whitaker, at General Motors, looking around and saying, hey, if God forbid Fritz Henderson should step off the curb and get right. hit by a bus, who do we got to run the company here? Well, is that an insurance policy keeping I, uh, Bob Lutz around? I'm not sure it's an insurance policy as much as that ultimately the business of this business is building cars that are exciting that you can sell profitably. And their cost structure is going to collapse uh, significantly. So it's going to be easier to be profitable. But ultimately, you have to have really good products uh, in, in the marketplace. And, and Bob has that touch. He has that feel. 
Probably the most important thing from my perspective in Lutz is that it said that the role of the government in GM is probably not going to be as strong as uh, some of us had feared. Because if you look at, say, the environmentalist, uh, Lutz is not viewed as, uh, as their leading candidate to be a major part of this industry. Uh, that to me was a very symbolic gesture. It said this is somebody that, you know, acts like a 30-year-old, he happens to be 70-something, uh, is a good move. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. It was also a good sign because, you know, the bankruptcy was all about reducing the cost structure. Absolutely. Going forward, they have to build revenue, and that means moving the metal, and that's what, what Lutz knows how to do. The one thing that I found a little confusing was separating the, yeah. the sales and the marketing. function from, from the marketing uh, up the ladders. You know, so you have the sales uh, side of each of the, the divisions, the brands, reporting to Mark Lenave, and you have the marketing people reporting to Bob Lutz, and I'm not sure how that's going to work. Well, marketing is the idea is to understand what the customer really wants, and sales is moving the product. So I'm not sure they really have to be one and the same. Uh, we've been sort of uh, thought that that's the case, but we'll see. <clears throat> and, and if it doesn't work, it change. But I think that really is the key thing, is you, you do something, you, you validate whether it works or not. If it doesn't work, you, you, you do something else, and you, you make those decisions pretty well, quickly. Through his career, Lutz has instinctively known what people want to buy. And uh, you look at the, the newer things that GM has come out with under his watch, they've all sold pretty well. And uh, so I, I think the government in reality wants to get its money back and they want to sell cars and that's why Lutz is still there. Well, people need to read Lutz's book. Uh, go uh, back Lutz. and read it. Go back and read it because you see uh, Bob Lutz uh, there and one of the you know, key rules or laws is that the customer is not always right. Uh, but he has had that feel, uh, that instinct uh, that is, and, 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 and Bob is kind of a funny guy. You know, everybody looks at him as this huge ego that loves to be up front. But underneath that is a very disciplined executive, very disciplined. And uh, I think the government really understood this. I, as Tom, as you said, they, they want their money back. You've got to do it with product execution. That's really key. And, and, and Bob is very, very strong. The other thing that I think is important is that he unleashed, for example, at GM, same thing he did at, at Chrysler, he unleashed uh, the designers. You know, design staff used to be called styling at all of the companies. Design is more than just the aesthetic part. It's the advanced uh, concepts and so on. And he really took the handcuffs off. He took them away from sort of the people that want to structure them. And, and, I, and I think that's key. And we, of course, have seen this now with the new head of, uh, of, of Cadillac. He likes creative people. He likes people that have a passion for what they're doing. And uh, having a Bob Lutz there sort of orchestrating that process, I think, has gotten, the, he's gotten the message across. And, of course, uh, you're talking about Brian Nesbitt as the, the new head of Cad exactly. Cadillac. And I don't think we've ever seen a designer in charge of, of, a, of a car division, no. ever, it's in the history of design. the business. You know, it's a funny thing about creative people, and I've dealt with them for many, many years back when I was teaching, working with the industrial designers, is that creative is not just what they put on paper. It's, it's how they think about everything. Process. And from what it, I understand, too, Nesbitt has the, the left brain and right brain kind of down, and he can do both, and that's a very unique skill, and that's why he was promoted, uh, because he can go both ways. That's and if he doesn't work, we'll never see a designer in that position again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th I think just unleashing a different part of the organization. We've always had sort of the quantitative folks uh, pretty much in charge. That's how we ran companies. But getting some of the qualitative uh, you know, the style and design uh, people involved, I, I think it's a wonderful thing.
Uh, along those lines, what do you guys think of Chrysler making CEOs of what used to be brand managers? Uh, what's your take on that, where they have full profit and loss responsibility for their brand? We'll, we'll see. I mean, of course, you know, the ironic thing is that we have two companies that went into bankruptcy or out, and they're hugely different. Yes. Uh, hugely different. Uh, Chrysler has to have a global partner, a global presence. They've got to have world scale. They, they, they don't have that now. But what we're in is a, is a testing period. It, it's a simpler organization than, uh, than GM. It probably won't be during this process of merging with Fiat. But we'll see. I, I, the, the, the test on this is, does it succeed? And, and of course, it's, it's the system that Fiat has used with its own right. brands in Italy and in Europe. So to great effect. Right. To great effect. So they, so they obviously have confidence that it will work in North America as well. Yeah, individual responsibility where it comes back, uh, okay, the whole game. Now, one of the problems we've had over the years is that people will move so fast uh, that they don't have a chance to really get evaluated on the basis of the decisions that they're made. And, uh, and, and, and like in the case of Fiat, that, that has worked. Uh, and Fiat's the boss. You know, this is, you know, they're, they're running the show. In some, some ways, it's a throwback to the old General Motors system where you had the, the vice president general manager who, who, who ran the division as a, as a fiefdom, the way as he a, wanted a to do company. it. It was as a standalone a, car a company, standalone essentially. Car company, exactly. That's right. That gives rise to parochialism, though, and you have to watch that you don't become the old GM. It's a management challenge for uh, Mr. Marchioni as well. Oh, I agree, but I think GM's downfall was actually going away from that yeah. setup, uh, and not that it, it, it encouraged too much sort parochialism. It the, uh, the uniqueness of the brands when they did. Well, it, it still suggests that uh, there's probably never going to be a perfect structure. Uh, we can take a perfect structure temporarily and we can make it bad because of how we learn. It's like running. I, when I run, I run a mile when I start running. Uh, next couple of weeks later, I've got to run a mile and a half to get the same amount of exercise. You know, we figure out the easy way to do things and cut the corners. And that's why we need to change periodically. Uh, people need to be confronted with change uh, regularly to hone uh, their system, otherwise be, be compla complacent and lazy. You know, it's, it's human nature. Does Ford stand at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis Chrysler and General Motors because they've had so much cost taken out, they've been able to restructure more than Ford is, right not, not right the second, of course, because Ford looks pretty strong right oh, now. But I mean, a couple of years down the road, is Ford going to be at a disadvantage? Well, this is a challenge that is typical in industries where you have a bankruptcy, where some people go into bankruptcy, they come out, uh, they don't liquidate, they come out and they have debts restructured, uh, the company is leaner. Absolutely, this is a competitive advantage. I think if uh, both GM and Chrysler had their druthers, they would be, uh, rather be in Ford's shoes of not having gone into bankruptcy. But that debt overhang is, is a curse. I'm not worried about this from a labor perspective. The UAW would do everything for Ford that they have done. You get issues in maybe the dealers a little bit. You get issues in uh, you know, the structure of the company. But the debt is this big thing. It's, it's the 500-pound gorilla that's in the room. That, uh, hopefully, they'll be able to structure. We'll see the market come back. Uh, debt holders will look at equity in a more uh, positive way. Uh, so there are some solutions. Uh, I, I think uh, Alan Mulally is doing a, a, a terrific job, but the real test will be down the road after we get into the regrowth of this industry and the economy. Yeah, Ford stock has been rising here of late. Uh, the more it goes up, uh, the easier it is to restructure Absolutely. your debt by making an equity offer. But without, but without that debt, Ford stock would be $50 a share. Mm -hmm. You know, if the debt were uh, modest, that's, that's the uncertainty here. 
Uh, I'm pulling for him. I, 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 think, it's, uh, I think it's very, very important. Uh, my stock portfolio is pulling for him, too. <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at least they have a, a, a stock that you can buy. That's right. That's right. You have other stock that you can sell or use as a write-off, and I've done some of that. <laughs> What's your sense at? Is, is Ford going to be at a disadvantage here? Well, I, I, I agree with Dave that I think they, they do have that cost hanging over their head. But, you know, if you look at where they're going in the short term with the product plans, everything seems to be falling into place for them. You know, they're, they're getting good mileage, forgive the pun, with, uh, with EcoBoost. They have Fiesta coming. Focus is good. Um, the new Taurus, while it's a little heavier than I would have thought was practical, is, is a very nice automobile. The, the product plan is falling in place. And as we know, if the market picks up and the product sells, uh, that cures an awful lot of ills. That's what has to happen is the, the market has to come back, though, because they've got the, this right. giant debt that they've taken out to get through this period that they, you know, they have to be able to repay. I'll tell you a story about... Um, at the auto show in 2008, I took my then 16-year-old daughter. She's looking at a Civic, and she looks across at the Ford display, which was in view, and there's this purple-pink metallic Fiesta sitting there. And she goes, wow, what is that? And she, like, races across there, and she goes right up to it. And I think that right there, when that moment happened, that led me to believe that Ford is probably going to make it and do well. Um, if you can attract that younger buyer back to your brand, which they really need to do, uh, if my daughter's any example, uh, that's they, a they telling ad. Well, uh, they may well make it. And another another good indicator, I think, was that the cash burn in the second quarter was dramatically reduced, right. which which makes it seem if the current market assumptions hold that Ford that Ford can continue on. They burned about a billion dollars in automotive right. operations for the quarter, down substantially right. about a quarter or so of what it had yeah. been, and and they say it's going to keep on dropping every quarter. They say it'll be less than before. So th that does bode well. It does. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's very good news there. What we need for everybody to have this market begin to come back. It's not sustainable at a 10 million unit. We need to get back to a normal recession level. And I think one of the sort of snakes uh, lurking in the grass here is this uh, fuel price volatility. Uh, a year from now, are we going to have a $1.50 gallon fuel or is it going to be $5 a gallon? We don't know. And in, in the weakening of the industry that occurred a year ago with a shift in uh, market uh, with uh, fuel price increase, and it was the high rate of change that really impacted it. That was sort of the, uh, the mini blow, then the maxi blow, blow was the credit meltdown. Yeah. That's, that's lurking in the weeds to be a problem down the road that can hurt everyone in this business. GM says it's going to have a portfolio that will go either way. If gas is cheap, it's going to have the big trucks and SUVs, and if gas is expensive, it's going to have all the small well, cars. You, but you want to be able to sell everything uh, with high capacity utilization in your plants. I mean, if you have you know, really high price gas and your truck and SUV plants are not producing and you're at overcapacity in these plants, uh, that's still tough. The one thing that they have is that with that break-even point being reduced to around uh, 10 million annual sales in the economy, and it's in the area of thousands of dollars of cost reduction that they're achieving in the product, what they have the potential to become is really the price leader. And this gets back to the issue that, from a competitive standpoint is if you can price uh, your product to give pain to uh, your competitor, uh, that's a very difficult thing to deal with. Uh, being, it's, it's what the internationals have had because of no legacy cost problems here, is that they, they could price to give pain to their domestic competition. So 
the industry is still going to be really wild and exciting, and we're going to have jobs for a long time uh, following the chaos that will not go away as even this market improves. What about the story that came out this week of what they're calling the German provision, where German automakers and, and other builders of exotic cars are pretty much exempt from the, the CO2 legislation and fuel economy legislation. Uh, you know, we know that BMW, Mercedes, Porsche have missed cafe forever and they just get out their that checkbooks and they write a check mm -hmm. and they give it to Uncle Sam. And then there was a report last week that the government said, no, we're not going to tolerate that anymore. And then this week we find out, yeah, they are going to tolerate it. And if, if you exceed the, uh, the levels, you're free to do so. But I can't believe that the American government would give that kind of an exemption to the American automakers. Who knows? I mean, I think that we have to look at this entire thing, whether it's cafe, uh, cap and trade, how this is going to unfold as a work in progress. And what is going on now is sort of the testing uh, politically of some of these kinds of things. And it's a, it's a hot potato. Uh, one of the things that we do know, for example, is that consumers, because they visit gas stations all the time, are very sensitive to fuel prices. It's very different than when you write a big check on April 15th, that's once a year kind of thing, and you get over it. You don't get over the things with fuel or you know, the pricing or what you see in front of you with respect to the car business. So it's going to be volatile for some time, and in terms of policy, um, the politics of this are going to be important uh, as to how this plays out and impacts the industry. And as Ron Bloom said uh, to you, Tom, they want their money back. Uh, the one way you get your money back, what they want more than anything is a sustainable, profitable industry that pays taxes, pays the government's money back, and hires lots of people. This is, this is what the objective is. This is what our objective is in terms of this industry. And it has not been on a sustainable path. And we have to get it there. I wonder too, if you factor out the government even, does the marketplace take care of what you described? Um, from a social standpoint where there's increasing environmental awareness, would, would people shun a product that, that has an exemption to the CAFE and, and CO2 uh, regulations? and it doesn't get as good a gas mileage, can I afford to buy it? Well, these are all very expensive cars. I mean, this is That's the jet true. set. They're not going to care, care if uh, their S600 Mercedes V12 is rated at 13 miles to the gallon. Pshaw, my good man, I'll just whip out another couple of 20s. <laughs> right. Come right. on. And, and how many of the big Democratic uh, contributors drive them? Well, I wonder, is there going to be a political backlash? Because I tell you, I, I find it is. infuriating that the jet set can pollute all they want, Whereas the rest of us, and especially the American automakers, are held at a disadvantage. And here's why it's a disadvantage. These are halo cars. And if you want to have your brand perceived as the best of the best, you need halo cars. And halo cars tend to be big, powerful machines. And if, say, Cadillac and Lincoln are not going to get an exemption to do these kinds of halo cars, they're always going or to be at a disadvantage. Lexus uh, as well. I mean, anybody that has a luxury brand that's part of a high-volume manufacturer is in a different position than a luxury brand where the whole manufacturer produces luxury brand. Well, and, and you know, we've seen this week the interest in automobiles in the cash for, for clunkers thing I, that, that looked initially like it, like it might be fully subscribed within days. You know, there was enough 
pent-up demand for people looking for a deal in a car. And, you know, 4500 bucks. Chrysler was throwing more than that on the hood of a truck and couldn't right. sell them, right. you know. Right. So it's, it's really the psychology of, of, of the situation. But, there's, but, but good psychology, right? Yes, I mean, it's bringing absolutely. people into the showroom. Absolutely. But, you know, there's an interesting thing coming. We're kind of focused on the gloom. What we should also be looking at is down the road just a little ways. I mean, we're building uh, tremendous positive forces in our economy. We're growing households at a million a year. We've got 13 million annual scrappage rate. Uh, we got capacity reduction, probably about 5 million units, ultimately when this is all done, taken out. We're gonna shift from a, what has been a buyer's to a seller's market. Those incentives are gonna go away. Uh, and as those incentives go away, and on top of the high capacity utilization in these facilities, we're gonna see a very, very profitable industry relatively quickly. And so this, and, and we, we tend to be captured by the here and now rather than what is being put in place to occur. And what is being put in place to occur is, is that we're gonna go back to what the industry looked like uh, 20 years ago where incentives were basically an end of the year kind of thing to clean out the old inventory. And that's one of the reasons I think we're gonna see a more gradual increase in volume is that uh, we're not gonna be pushing volume to the extent that the industry did uh, because the capacity isn't there to do it. And everybody has sort of arrived at the conclusion, why did we do this? You know, uh, we can't uh, cover our cost increases and in benefits and in steel and, and, and so on. It was a flawed business model and it doesn't make any difference whether you've gone through bankruptcy or not. Uh, I think there's a broad recognition that the industry at a global level was so overcapacitized that it turned the consumers into a true buyer's market kind of consumer. That has to stop if this is going to be a successful industry and the things are in place to do it. Okay, General Motors had to take capacity out in bankruptcy. Chrysler had to take mm -hmm. capacity out in bankruptcy. How do we convince other automakers that they too need to take capacity out rather than, than, than staying with the push model for, for supply? Well, I, I, I think it's uh, happening. Uh, uh, Toyota basically shut down their expansion uh, here. They've been expanding in other parts of the world. I think it's one of the reasons they changed their, their management. I've been talking to some journalists in uh, the Bay Area on the West Coast, and they're wondering what's going to happen to Numi. Uh, 4,700 Speaking of that, we're getting down to the end because I want you to work this in. This coming week, we've got the management briefing seminars, which is organized by your organization, the Center for Automotive Research. You've got Akio Toyota, Toyota family first, member, coming first in public to, appearance. To, to speak. Uh, what do you think is going to come out of the conference? Well, uh, obviously, it's a different kind of conference. The theme is today's turmoil, turmoil a foundation for future success, and I, and I think that's true. Uh, you know, we you do big things during this kind of a period. And it's true of the domestics, it's true of the internationals. Uh, but the Japanese are under enormous pressure right now. Uh, for example, the strengthening of the yen has been a, just a killer. Every dollar to, or yen to dollar shift, for example, 120 to 119 yen uh, to the dollar cost of Toyota, $400 million. I mean, enormous cost. And here is a member of the family, uh, very uh, attuned uh, to our culture, uh, got a degree at uh, Babson. Uh, college on the East Coast, uh, has worked here for some time. He's been at our management briefing before as a, as a speaker. Now he's coming uh, to Traverse City. It's the first time uh, that he will be, as chairman, making a presentation. Uh, and it'll be very interesting because everybody wants to know what's going on in these new people's head. But we've got Lewis Booth from Ford, Tom Stevens. Uh, We've got Ed Montgomery and Ron Bloom from the government. Uh, you know, the old word is the government's from here to help was uh, kind of a joke. Uh, 
I think the government is here to help, and it's not a joke this time, and it's important that they're in Traverse City talking to us. Well, I, I want to get more of your views. We're going to have to leave the cameras rolling, and we're going to go to our Internet segment for that. But I want to thank all of you for, for coming on uh, Autoline Detroit for the broadcast version. David Cole from the Center for Great. Automotive Research, Tom Kirscher from the Associated Press, Ed Lapham from Automotive News. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for tuning in. I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. As I mentioned, we're going to run the cameras and continue the conversation. You can catch that right now at our website at AutolineDetroit.tv. And if you need more than just a weekly dose of industry information, check out AutoLine Daily. It's a six-minute daily webcast of what's going on in the global automotive industry. And then on Thursday nights at 7 p.m., it's time for AutoLine After Hours, the first live webcast dedicated to the automotive industry. Join me and Peter DeLorenzo, the publisher of AutoExtremist.com, for the most unlikely show about the auto industry. Our guest will be Kurt Ritter, who spent a long career at GM before heading to Saatchi, LA, where he handles all of Toyota's advertising. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching.